It's said that your real life begins where your comfort zone ends. Well, it's about to get real as we have radically authentic conversations to help you thrive in your personal and professional life while navigating the twists and turns of being human. Buckle up, because this might get uncomfortable. Starts right now with Whitney Lordson. I don't know if I've been quite this excited, which doesn't feel like quite the right word, but I've been anticipating the conversation with today's guest, Tal, because he wrote a book and still has a really big impact on my life called The Pursuit of Perfect. I imagine that I've referenced this book in the past or listened to it, I should say, in August or September 2020, when I did my first big road trip across the country, which has now become an annual adventure. And I was listening to it with my friend Leanne, and the two of us were in complete awe of what we were hearing through this book. And I can't speak for her, but for myself, it's because I have felt like a recovering perfectionist. I feel like I'm still in recovery all these years later. Maybe I always will be. And I had a different place to start with you, Tal, but I actually would love to know do you still consider yourself a recovering perfectionist? Because I believe you use that term in the book. So I would like to know, does that still resonate with you? And do you ever fully recover from being a perfectionist? Thank you for this question, Whitney, and thank you for having me here. So the simple answer is yes. The reason is basically any form of addiction. It never really goes away. It doesn't go away completely. It gets weaker, less dominant, less oppressive or pervasive, but it's still always there. Wonderful work by Karen Hornai, who was actually a student and a prodigy of Freud, and she broke away from him at some point. But Karen Hornai writes about neuroses, and she considers perfectionism to be a, a, a neuroses. And she says neuroses never really go away. Again, they weaken, they become less dominant, but they're always there. And therefore, we need to be vigilant so that they don't overtake us again. So yes, I end the book, as you know, by saying my name is Tal and I'm a perfectionist. And I guess this is something that I will always dealing with. And I must say, I don't think it's a bad thing because yes, it, that in and of itself is keeping me vigilant and hopefully more humble about the human condition in general and about my personal abilities in particular. Thank you for sharing that. I think it's refreshing because one thing I spend a lot of time catching myself in is the fixing mentality, which is something you bring up in that book about how a lot of us perhaps were conditioned I'm not quite sure why we do this, but this desire to try to fix ourselves. And I was actually thinking about before we started recording, why I've been so drawn to your work. And I thought, okay, I really like personal development. And I stopped to reflect on that. Why do I like reading personal development books so much? Why do I like learning about psychology? And 
I'm very curious about it. It ignites something in me. But then I wonder, am I just trying to become perfect? Am I trying to fix things? Am I trying to improve all the time? And I feel a bit conflicted about that. So I'm curious how you identify. Do you find yourself on a a quest for knowledge? Obviously, you, you reference so many great researchers and psychologists, people that work in these fields. You must have to spend a lot of time studying it. But what is your relationship towards learning and improving? This is a great question. And again, my my mind is racing. So I will bring this question back to a theory that I feel very comfortable with and I think can help me answer it better. I think back in 1995, when I was a student, I read a wonderful book called uh, Built to Last. And that book became a huge bestseller then, was and still is by many considered to be a landmark in the field of uh, organizational studies. And basically what it did was it looked at the organizations, the companies that have been most successful, that have really were built to last. At that time, again, this it was published, I think in 94, it was companies like Disney and Sony and General Electric. And it asked, what's unique about these companies? What are the distinguishing characteristics of these companies? And, you know, they were visionaries and they focused on purpose, the things that we often talk about. But one of the things um, characteristic of these companies is the following, and I quote, that time were two Stanford professors, Collins and Porras, and they say the following, these companies, rather than succumbing to the tyranny of the or, O-R, they embrace the genius of the and, A-N-D. And I love that. So rather than either or, they go for the and. And they give an example. For instance, there are companies that say, you know, we're all about empowering our employees. We're all about delegation. And then there are companies, either the way they present themselves or de facto in practice, all about micromanagement, a dictatorship-like organization. So it's either empowering and delegation or all the power is controlled at the top, dictatorship. But the great companies embrace the genius of the end. And yeah, they empower and they delegate. And yet there are times when micromanagement is necessary, when failure is not an option. And they're able to synthesize these two seeming opposites, these two extremes. Or another example, which is closer to my field of positive psychology. Yeah, I'm just going to look at the full part of the glass, you know, all positive, grateful for everything, you know, everything is the pink colored glasses. Or I'm a pessimist. I look at the empty part of the glass because I want to be realistic. Well, the genius of the end is there is a time and a place for both. And I'd like to take this model because as you were talking, this came up for me in terms of the answer. So do I want to fix myself and uh, improve? And the answer is yes. When people ask me, Tal, are you happy? My response to that is that I can't answer this question. Because I don't think that happiness is a binary zero one. I can certainly say that I'm happier today than I was 30 years ago when I started off. At the same time, I hope to be happier five years from now than I am today, which is why I also called my book Happier. 
rather than happiness or happy. So yes, I want to improve. And again, five years from now, I want to be a different place where I'm, you know, less of a perfectionist, more of an optimalist, less anxious, calmer, happier. Okay. So this is one part. I always want to improve and get better. At the same time, and this is the other side of the end. It's also extremely important to appreciate, to be grateful for, to look back and, you know, give yourself a pat on the back. Well done. You've gone through these experiences. You have grown. You have done well. It's okay to just breathe deeply and relax. Because if we're always thinking, I need to improve, I need to get better, I need to fix this and that, we're always living in the future. At the same time, being content and accepting and embracing everything all the time, that also falls short of us fulfilling our potential and being true to our nature. Because our nature is such that we can and ought to enjoy the present that we ought and can celebrate and appreciate and be grateful. And our nature also dictates that we want to improve. And in order to fulfill our potential for happiness, we need to improve. So yes, accept, embrace, be grateful, and try to fix, improve, and grow. That word binary is such a great summary of this. I feel like we live in a time of a lot of black and white thinking. And yet there's so many gray areas. There's so many overlaps. We don't need to take sides. And I find myself often in that con confliction of, wow, I like being in the gray area, but I feel like I live in the world that wants me to choose this or that. It doesn't feel to me like the world has a lot of room, at least the experiences that I've had for the and. And I'm curious, do you experience a lot of and in your life or do you, I guess your answer could be an and as well. <laughs> Maybe you experience both the or and the and, but You're do you find it's hard <laughs> to operate? Actually, I should start with, do you see the world pushing us towards a black and white, this or that binary? There's so much division in the world, for example, and feels like so much pressure to take a side, to take a stance. And there's not a lot of room for people to express the humanity within the and, within the gray areas. Yeah, I, I absolutely feel it and I, and I see it. And it's also documented, the fact that there is a lot more schism split. There are much more extremes in our society, whether we're talking politically whether we're talking ideologically, even say within the field of psychology or within philosophical discussions, we see a lot more people going to the extremes. And there are various reasons for it. Probably the main reason is probably social media because of the way that algorithms around social media are created. So, you know, if I'm one side of the political spectrum, social media will know. The algorithm will very quickly figure out what I'm interested in, what my position is, and then it will feed that further. I'm likely to get ideas or dissensions from my belief. Whereas if I'm on the other side, similarly, I will get reinforcements, articles written by like-minded, like-hearted individuals, and that will reinforce 
where I am. And we know from all, and there's a lot of research, say, on negotiation, that it's so important to put yourself in the other person's position. Because what happens then? First of all, you're more open and you're more likely to attain a, a higher level of thinking in the form of a synthesis. Hegel, the German philosopher, says, you know, how's progress created? He says, there's always a thesis. And then there is antithesis. And growth comes when there is a synthesis. And that applies on a national level. It applies, we look at history. He was a historian and a philosopher. And it also applies to me as an individual. By the way, this is also how science grows. You know, the work of Kuhn showing that you need antithesis to your thesis in order to attain higher level of understanding development. And we're missing that. And by the way, let's say I do get to this synthesis, that simply becomes a new thesis. And then there is an antithesis to that, and that leads to further growth. And when we see and, and experience the world as black and white, and the black or the white is then reinforced, we're not getting the pushback that we need. Whitney, I'm thinking now about one of my favorite essays ever written. It's by the person I consider, and many consider, the father of North American philosophy, and that is Ralph Waldo Emerson. And he has a beautiful, beautiful essay on friendship. And in the essay, he writes the following. He says, in a friend, I'm not looking for a mush of concessions a person who will agree with everything that I say. Rather, what I'm looking for in a friend is a beautiful enemy, someone who will challenge me, who will help me in my apprenticeship to the truth. So a beautiful enemy, and we need them in person. And we also need the articles, the text, the challenge to my belief system so that I can grow, and even more importantly, so that we as a society can grow. I don't think I've heard that. It doesn't sound familiar, but it really resonates. It's interesting because there are so many opportunities when we can listen to somebody that feels like they're opposite, they're opposing. I read a great book on this called The Righteous Mind. Are you familiar with that book? Mm -hmm. It was very helpful in understanding our own righteousness and the history around that and really navigating times when we might fall into a debate and we feel like we don't understand someone, they're so different than us. And I I think that's a big challenge that I'm feeling at the state of things right now is a bit of a closed-minded experience of other people. And I have an opportunity to think, well, where am I (laughs) closed-minded? If they don't seem to have an open mind, how can I at least have an open mind for how they're showing up in the world. And and that enemy, like what can we learn from our enemies feels so appealing as long as it doesn't feel like a danger to yeah. our safety. And I think we need, that's why Emerson added the, you know, the adjective beautiful enemy. So again, it is someone that is on, on your side in terms of the desire to grow or desire that you grow and that, you know, she, he grows. That's also appealing on on the personal experience I've had of friendships ending, relationships ending with people, because it felt like 
we came to a disagreement, we had a fight, you know, and yearning for somebody to say, you know what, we might not agree, we might be going through a hard time, but let's work through this, let's stay friends, let's use this to grow. And I haven't experienced a lot of the beautiful enemy. (laughs) I would like to. And I don't quite know how you find those people. Do you? Like, how do you find a beautiful enemy versus just an enemy, period? Yeah, no, I I think, again, that's such an important question for all of our relationships, you know, whether it's a relationship with, you know, parent-child relationship, whether it's romantic partners, whether it's friends, whether it's colleagues, I think it's so important to establish the relationship explicitly or implicitly as one where we care and at the same time we're authentic and being authentic means we'll disagree. Every relationship past the honeymoon phase, there's disagreement. And when I talk about the honeymoon phase, literally in romantic relationships or when it comes to children, you know, when they get to their terrible twos or certainly when they get to their teen years, um, after two or three years working together in the same office, they'll inevitably disagreements. We see things differently, and that's a wonderful thing. If we see each other as supporting one another rather than as threatening to one another. So you're disagreeing with me. Is it a threat or is it a, a potential opportunity for growth? Now, we're talking here and in sterile environment of our conversation. It's easier said than done. You know, when you're with a person in a romantic relationship and you're hearing criticism in their voice or disapproval in their voice, and sometimes it's real, of course, it's easier to respond to it with equanimity and ease and acceptance. So as is the case in, in most situations, theory is easier than practice, though the theory is important because it can give us a a sort of a compass of what we uh, aspire to and strive for. That was actually something I was curious about for you because you've been studying happiness for so long, teaching it. I mean, your life has, has, from my perspective, been fairly devoted to happiness. And there are a lot of theories that perhaps oversimplify it. I mean, (laughs) acceptance, being present, maybe just those two elements of life could bring us all much more happiness, but it's a theory versus the practice. It's a lot harder. And I'm, I'm curious with everything that you've immersed yourself in, does happiness come easily to you? Some people, when they meet me, they would say something like, oh, you know, I've read your book, or some would take it even further and say, your book is next to my bed. They didn't necessarily read it. And I always say, are you applying it? Because we have a double standard, and I've come across this double standard almost consistently throughout my career, that on the one hand, we think that reading a book on happiness or attending a workshop on well-being is enough and should make us happier. But would anyone have this approach towards another skill that they want to acquire in their life? So let's say I want to learn how to play the piano. Oh, I read the book on piano playing, or I have the book with a score right next to my bed right now, 
Or would you say the same about playing tennis? Yeah, read the book, been there, done that. No, of course not. Yeah, maybe you read the book and that can be helpful, but then you would get on court and practice that backhand over and over again. Uh, You may hire a coach to help you with that backhand and you would go back to that coach and work on that backhand again and again and again. And you know what? Even Djokovic or Serena Williams, they still work on their backhands in order to improve it, even when they are world number one or were world number one, because we can always improve. And again, happier, not happy. We can always improve. We can always grow. And this is the approach that I would like people to take towards happiness or towards acceptance or towards presence. Even Mathieu Ricard, who is one of the best known meditators in the world, you know, has meditated literally tens of thousands of hours in his life. He's still working on it. He didn't say after 10,000 hours, okay, now I'm an expert. I no longer need to meditate anymore. He continues to practice daily. And it's the same with happiness. That makes me wonder, why does it seem like there's, I would say, at least in the American society, the one that I've I've grown up in and just notice over and over again that if you just get to this point, you'll feel happy or fulfilled. If you just do this, then that. If this, then that. And yet most of us aren't even experiencing that. Anyone who's had great success in life, however they define it, tends to want to keep practicing, tends to want more. There's that feeling. I think it might have come up when I was listening to the Shortcuts to Happiness book, which I was listening to in the car earlier today, as I told you. I feel like there was something around that idea, how there's just this striving of getting more and more and believe it's Avi, yes? who is the focus, your, your ha- former hairdresser, is that the right yeah, term? Yeah, my barber. Barber. Beautiful book. And it's a great audiobook. I was telling Tal, who hasn't even listened to it himself yet. I really enjoyed it. It's nice and short. It, it filled me with so much joy. All these stories and takeaways from your barber. And I believe it, he was talking about just being happy with what you have. And again, it sounds great in theory, but why do you think it's so hard for us to just be happy with what we have? Is it influenced by society's pressure to always have more and to always keep striving, which part of that makes sense based on what you said, that there's so many great benefits to growing as human beings. However, we also need to find a way to feel satisfied with it. Otherwise, will we ever experience happiness? So in your research, essentially, why do you think we're at that place in society of just the pressure to be more never good enough? We have to earn our worthiness. How did that develop? And is there a way out or is that just where we're at as human beings? Yeah. Whitney, one of the ideas that in many ways forms the backbone of my teaching is the importance of stories. In physics, for a long time, the scientists, physicists have been looking for the unifying theory of existence of the universe. Einstein looked for that one formula that will explain everything. You know, Max Planck, Marie Curie, you know, really looked for this formula 
for the unifying theory. Possibly we never will. You know, it could just be above our pay grade as human beings. However, in psychology, there is a unifying theory. And the unifying theory of psychology is stories. If you think about it, everywhere you look in the field of psychology, you find stories as a central theme or more than that. For example, what's therapy about? Therapy is about us going into a session, telling our story and feeling so much better as a result. If you think about the psychology of leadership, of organizations, the greatest leaders, what do they do? They tell stories. Um, if you look at cognitive psychology, what do we remember best? Not statistics, not theories. We remember stories. So we are wired for stories. Look at cultural psychology. How is culture transmitted from generation to generation? It's through our stories, our collective stories. So everywhere you look, you find stories. And you ask two questions. One is, how come we as a society expect to just be happier? And second question that you asked is, why can't we just be happy? The answer to these two questions are because of the stories that we are told. So we expect to be able to just be happy because these are the stories that we are told in the self-help literature by and large. Here are the five steps. And if you do them, you'll be as happy as I am now. Or to quote one of the most important and again, brilliant self-help writer, Napoleon Hill, think and grow rich. Just think about it. And then you'll grow rich. And you know, if it applies to wealth, why shouldn't it apply to happiness? Think and be happy. Here is the secret to happiness. Just attract it into your life. The law of attraction that has gained so much traction. Now, all these ideas are draw-on some fundamental, natural human truths, but they're only partial truths. Yeah, of course, it's important what we think and whether we imagine ourselves successful or as failures. Yeah, it matters a great deal makes it more likely to be successful, more likely to attract success into our life when we imagine ourselves successful. But there's a lot more than goes with it. Just thinking about wealth or happiness is not enough. Just going through the five steps is not enough. More than that, going through the five steps may get us to a higher plane, but that higher plane is just part of our potential. We can always climb higher and higher. Again, it's a lifelong journey. It's not a binary zero one. But the stories that we hear, the movies that we watch, I mean, they very much implant the stories that we carry. And what do the movies tell us? Yeah, you go through hardship and difficulties and trials and tribulations. And then after one hour and 37 minutes, you're ready to live happily ever after. That's a story. And as you pointed out in your question, it's a myth. And it's leading us astray. Because when my life story plays out in a very different way than the one hour and 37 minutes story, 
then I begin to feel inadequate. If after going through these five steps, and again, following them to the letter, I'm not as happy or successful, however I define it, as the author or the exemplars in that book, then I feel inadequate, which is part of the reason why the number of self-help books is growing exponentially. And depression and anxiety are rising, astounding rate. And we see that on social media too, that just all these little steps and sound bites and quote to make it seem like it's so easy. And I think through the process of making something seem easy for those that don't find it easy, they think they must be doing it wrong or something's wrong with them if it's working for someone else all the time. And here is the thing, Whitney, it's not easy for anyone. And the people who claim that it is easy are not looking in the long term because they themselves have struggled and if they live long enough, will struggle because that's part of the human condition. And by suggesting that it even can be easy, that contributes to what I call the great deception, which is largely responsible for the great depression. And I do want to talk about the second question that you raised, and that is, why can't we just be happy? Why do we make it so unnecessarily difficult for ourselves at times? And part of it, part of it is because of the advertising campaigns that are all around us. Because what do they look for? They want us to buy the next thing. Because their suggestion, implicit, sometimes explicit, is that what we have, who we are, is not enough. And then we get into what Nathaniel Brandon, one of my mentors, talked about as the nothing is enough syndrome. Because you don't have the right watch yet. And you don't smell quite as you need to smell yet. And you don't have the car or the house or the partner that you can have. And the problem is that even when you have that car or house or partner, even that's not enough. Maybe it's enough for a day or a year. And then you immediately go to the next one because the myth that we have been sold and quite literally brainwashed is that nothing is good enough. And when we say nothing, that includes ourselves. That reminds me of something else that stood out in the book, Shortcut to Happiness, which really resonates with me right now in the phase of life that I'm in. I've been thinking a lot about ageism. And in the book, I love the section around emphasizing our relationships with people that are older, especially aging people, whether that's family members or anyone elder. And that resonates with me because I've felt, especially through social media and advertising, there's so much focus on youth. It's praising the youth or trying to make yourself look younger, act younger. There's not a lot of focus on the benefits of age. And the older I get, that starts to strike me as very odd because the other day was, I think it seems like I'm being punished for something I can't help. 
And isn't it a gift to grow older and have more life? Why are we pressured to try to act as if we're not the age that we are? I mean, there's just so much messaging around youth as being incredibly positive and something to strive for, but we can't actually strive to be any younger. Yeah. Again, another story. And the story is that you peak at, you know, whether it's 20 or 30, and then it's all downhill from there. And that's a story that is especially pronounced today, more, more so than ever, probably, and, and to a great extent has to do with the, what is advertised, you know, what is being sold to us. So first of all, just look at the title of this story, the headline, Anti-Aging. So, you know, I wrote a chapter about this in my first book, Happier, where I called the chapter the pro-aging movement, because there are so many upsides to aging, certainly in the context of happiness, because what we see in happiness, and again, I'm, I'm describing an average here, but this is a study that was done across the world and generally see the U-shape of happiness, meaning we experience certain level of happiness, you know, in our 20s, and then it goes down, and it goes down and goes down. And then as we age, specifically in our, again, on average, it's different for every person, but on average, when we're in our late 40s, early 50s, it starts to go up, and it goes up radically, and we become happier and happier as we age. Of course, controlling for severe illnesses and physical pain. But generally, we get happier as we age. And, you know, there are a few reasons for this. The main reason, what uh, statisticians would say, what accounts for most of the variance in explaining this U-shaped phenomenon is the fact that we become more accepting of ourselves, of others, and more open and more embracing towards our experiences and the world. And yet, the story that we are quite literally bombarded with is that try and avoid aging as much as possible, hence the anti-aging movement. And we pay a price for it. So Rebecca Levy, who is a professor at Yale University, actually showed that people who have a positive perspective, a positive orientation around aging are a lot happier as well as healthier as a result of it. So the story we tell ourselves is responsible for the reality that we live. We live better and we live longer when we have a more positive perspective of age. That's good to know. I'm really working on that. But it's hard, as I've alluded to before, sometimes it feels like swimming upstream, I think is the term, against the current, you know, of all this messaging. I mean, especially as a woman, there's so much pressure to look young and there's pressure to also look perfect. I think actually in The Pursuit of Perfect, you mentioned how women in particular have a lot of that pressure and to kind of go in a different direction than all of that is hard when your close friends or family members 
might be pushing these messages, reiterating them, echoing these things. And I often find myself going, wow, I'm seeing the research. I've read all these books. I believe in this. This resonates with me. But yet there's a cultural narrative, all these stories that you're mentioning that create that friction. And I'm curious how you navigate that because it sounds like it's something you can relate to. You have so much knowledge. You have research. You know the data. How do you personally operate in the world that pushes these narratives that we've been discussing? Mm -hmm. So first of all, Whitney, it's hard. It's challenging. What you're describing is part of the world we live in. And if you hear these voices from society, from sometimes from people you care about and who care about you, um, this has an effect on us. And it's not possible to, you know, to remain impervious to these external voices. What we can do, though, is counter them with healthier voices, whether internal or external. The key, though, is to counter. In the same way that neurosis never really goes away, these voices never will go away. But what we can do is lower their volume while increasing the volume on the counter. So if I may, I'd like to introduce, this is a model that I just recently came up with. I mean, these are things that I've been thinking about for years, but it just became very clear and relatively simple to explain quite recently for me. And that is what I've come to call the three R's of change, because it applies to every change process, whether I'm trying to change that voice in my head telling me I'm not good enough or you know, I'm not young enough or beautiful enough, or whether it's changing a habit of exercising regularly or eating more healthfully and so on. So it applies both to mindset as well as to behavior. So what are the three R's of change? Let me start with a question or, or an example. So question for you, Whitney, and this is a question that I can ask anyone, and I suspect I'll get the same answer. Tell me, do you prefer to take the, um, the good things in your life, the people whom you love, do you prefer to take them for granted or do you want to appreciate them? Now, rhetorical question, of course. I mean, I don't think anyone would say, no, yeah, I've appreciated my loved ones way too much. Now it's time for some taking them for granted. No, we all want to appreciate our loved ones or our loved things uh, or ourselves for that matter. And yet most people, most of the time, take the good things in their lives for granted, their loved ones for granted. All this, of course, until something happens, whether it's a tragedy or something comes up to remind us that we need to appreciate. But in general, when there is sort of a status quo, we take the good things in our lives for granted. Despite the fact that I just asked you, we know that we ought to, we should, we want to appreciate them. Why? Is it because we're bad people? Is it because we're inconsiderate? Not at all. It's because of a simple aspect, element of our nature, which is that we forget. We simply cannot keep too much information in our conscious mind at the same time. And we forget because other things take its place. And instead of appreciation, I'm thinking of project that I need to submit at work. 
And that's okay. But what we need in order to counter the forgetfulness, we need reminders. We need to create reminders in our life. And these reminders can come in in different shapes and forms. They can come, for example, in the form of a, a screensaver that reminds with the word appreciate. Or it can be a picture on my wall of my grandmother who always reminds me to look at the full part rather than empty part of the glass. Or it could be my phone reminding me every three hours to express gratitude. Or at night before I go to bed to do my gratitude exercise. Or it can be wearing a bracelet. And that bracelet for me at this particular time is associated with being grateful and appreciating. And the same can be done for trying to bring more kindness to my life. Again, rhetorical question, do you want to be kind or do you want to be harsh and inconsiderate? Yeah, of course we want to be kind. And yet so often we forget and we need those reminders in whatever shape or form. So that's the first R of the three R's process. The second R It's not enough to remind ourselves once or twice. Again, going back to the double standard that I spoke about earlier, it's not enough to go to the tennis court and the coach tells you, okay, you need to have your racket up and meet the ball just in front of your front leg. No, they'll tell it to you, remind you to do it again and again and again. Repetition is the second R, which is critical for bringing about lasting change. Because it's only through repetition that we get to the third R, and that is rituals. What are rituals? In modern terminology, rituals are deeply embedded neural pathways associated with a particular mindset or a particular behavior. Deeply embedded neural pathways. Because you know, Let's take a very simple example that we're all hopefully familiar with, which is brushing our teeth every day. It started off with reminders, usually, you know, mom or dad, have you brushed your teeth today? And then we do it over and over again. Repetition, the second art. And now I don't need my mom to tell me to brush my teeth. It's a ritual because there is a neural pathway, literally in my brain associated with brushing my teeth that leads to the fact that I feel uncomfortable leaving the home without doing it or getting into bed no matter how tired I am without doing it. You know, you wake up, Serena Williams, in the middle of the night and you throw a tennis ball at her at 100 miles an hour. If she has a racket, she'll hit it. She doesn't need to think about it. They're neural pathways, automatic. It's a habit. Why? Because her dad... King Richard reminded her how she needs to hit that ball over and over again, repetitively, until it became a ritual, a habit. John Dryden, the British philosopher, a few hundred years ago, wrote, we first make our habits and then our habits make us. And in order to create those habits, we need the reminders, we need the repetition, and then it becomes the ritual, which is a synonym for habit. Now, going back to your question, this was a long way of getting there. 
Whitney, we have these voices all around us. We need to counter them with alternative voices that are ritualized, that are deeply embedded as neural pathways. So if society tells us the story that aging is bad and you need to do everything that you can to maintain youth, you know, the way you look and the way you act, and that aging is synonymous with deterioration, that's a very powerful voice that we hear over and over again, and we have internalized it. It's a neural pathway that when I see a new wrinkle just under my eyes, I immediately think, oh no, I'm getting closer to the end. How terrible, how awful I'm aging. And instead, okay, so I smiled a lot and I laughed a lot and I have so much more laughter and smiles left in me. I can't wait to make them even more pronounced and more real, creating an alternative message, an alternative story. But we need to tell it and retell it, reinforce it, repeat it so that it's ritualized. Now, one way to repeat it is also to surround ourselves with cheerleaders, with a choir, with people who have similar views. You know, research by Christakis, he's a professor at Yale, shows that people who hang out with happy people tend to be happier. A big surprise here, our environment affects us. People who hang out with smokers are more likely to smoke. People who hang out with people who lead a healthy lifestyle are more likely to lead that lifestyle because our environment does matter. So we need to look for supportive environments in terms of the messages, in terms of the practices and behaviors. And at the same time, I don't think we should put ourselves in sterile environment where only positive message messages are find us. We can also be responsible for generating positive messages, even when we are in a perhaps less supportive, less helpful environment. So we need to rely on ourselves, Emerson self-reliance, and as much as possible, we need to find an environment that supports us too. Speaking of environments, enjoying this conversation so much and thinking about how wonderful to be in a class with you and you teach all different structures, programs, degrees, classes, you've been teaching for so long. And you mentioned to me that, or I believe this is how you phrased it, that one of the things you liked the most, especially when you were teaching at Harvard University, was being in the cafeteria, having conversations. (laughs) I'm curious, do you you do structure your teaching around those conversations, the lessons and the questions that you're hearing from people Because there's just so much to cover. You mentioned philosophy. We have all different elements of history and research and psychology. There's so much data and opinions around happiness. How are you influenced by other people? And how does that drive the structure of your classes? One of the tools, techniques in the field of psychology specifically positive psychology, is identifying our strengths. Of course, it's important to identify our weaknesses, improve them. At the same time, it's no less important to focus on what your strengths are and what your passions are. And my passion and my strength is the love of learning. 
I'm very curious. You know, I love to learn whether it's through reading, whether it's through attending lectures and workshops, and most of all, through conversations. And my students know it. And whether it when I was at Harvard or today, you know, at Centenary and the Happiness Studies Academy, what I love more than anything is just having conversations with students where we share, address my students when I write to them. I always sign off not as your teacher or your professor. I always sign it off as your fellow journeyer um, because that's what I am. First of all, I'm on the same journey towards becoming happier, and it is a lifelong journey. And second, we're on this journey together because we're constantly learning and learning from one another. And this idea of a dialogue, this is exactly where synthesis resides. This is what a dialogue is all about. It's about presenting your thesis, encountering antithesis, and then together emerging with a synthesis. And that's what a journey looks like where the trajectory is upward. Again, not a smooth upward trajectory. There are many ups and downs, but overall, the general direction is towards improvement and growth. And at least for me, I have not found another that creates this kind of journey more than a conversation, a dialogue does. I couldn't agree more. There, <laughs> this is, for me, with the podcast, the driving force is to have those dialogues. And one thing I was thinking about earlier when you were talking is how, especially in the past few years, I don't know if it was driven by the pandemic, but it might have just been a coincidence. It was in early 2020, before the pandemic started, and, or at least established as it was in March. I was really contemplating the next phase of my life and what that meant for me professionally and personally, and noticing that a lot of things didn't really feel in alignment. They didn't feel as fulfilling. And I've spent the last few years just really reflecting on my identity and what I want, what brings me fulfillment. And one thing that shifted a lot is I don't have defined goals as much as I used to. And it's come up a lot. I've been asked fairly recently, I mean, frequently and recently, like, what are your goals? And I always pause. One thing that keeps coming to mind is my goal is just to feel happy and fulfilled. And I find it interesting that most people aren't expecting that answer. And I don't know if their reactions are confused because maybe it sounds too simple to just feel happy and fulfilled. And yet, as you've talked about today, happiness is not that simple. It's sim simple in theory, but it's a daily practice. And to me, what greater goal is there than to feel happy and fulfilled? And yet, as we've talked about today, there's so much focus on goals being some metric of success, some measurement of success. And that doesn't align with me anymore. <laughs> I'm like you, I'm curious. I want to learn. Like, if I can just learn something new every day, I've often thought if I could just learn for a living, which in a way is a big part of my living, just maybe not as directly. If I could read for a living, <laughs> maybe that's the career I want to pursue. <laughs> the reader. Mm. 
it looks like you are learning for a living. And when you have conversations, dialogues with, with different people, this is a wonderful way to learn and explore. But I have a question for you, Whitney. So come Sunday night, beginning of the week for you or whenever it is, and you look forward to the week. Do you have a few commitments for that week? Yes and no. I don't have a very traditionally structured life. Even Sundays don't feel like they used to when I worked a more traditional nine to five type of job. So what I think you might be asking is the commitments driving my fulfillment. Okay. I'm asking that. I'm curious about that. Yeah. You know, it's interesting as I have a lot of anxiety actually around things on my schedule. So I've, I actually try to keep it fluid because I feel happier when I have a lot of flexibility in my schedule. I like having something to look forward to, but there's tension there. And how about these conversations? You know, you have them with me and you have them, of course, with other people. Do you have a certain quota that you need to meet? I don't know. Yes. Once a week, you know, yes. once a month or whatever. I do. And that quota feels like pressure. However, there's a shift between putting something, again, looking at it like a metric, the quota, the number. But when I enter into that dialogue, there's a flow state where I feel that sense of fulfillment. But what I've noticed is it's almost like my brain forgets what that's like until I'm in it again. <laughs> I've been reflecting a lot of that recently. It's almost like I have anxiety around something on my schedule, but then when I start doing it, I'm really glad that I'm doing it. So mm -hmm. the brain is interesting in that way. <laughs> yeah, I love that, Whitney, and I love how you describe it. If I can just elaborate it from the context of the science of well-being. So yeah. essentially, when it comes to well-being or happiness, there are two schools of thoughts. One school of thought is mostly associated with the West, though not exclusively. One school of, of thought says happiness is about the attainment of a goal. It's about achievement. You'll be happy when you get to that peak of that mountain, conquer that, that stronghold, when you get this house, car, partner, life. So it's all about the future. This is what we call or we describe as, you know, the rat race mentality. When you achieve that goal, then you'll be happy. Now, there is a lot of research and we don't need research for that because we all have personal examples of that, but that just not enough. You know, if it were enough, then the very wealthy people in the world or the very successful people, athletes or uh, famous people in the world would be ecstatic because they have achieved those milestones, those goals. And yet many of them, as we know, are not just not happy, they're depressed and anxious and miserable, partially because they believed that they would be happy when they achieved that goal and they were let down. This is what I have come to call the arrival fallacy. The arrival fallacy is the false belief that when you achieve a certain goal, then you'll be happy. At the end of the one hour and 37 minutes, you will live happily ever after. 
it's wrong and it's actually a belief that leads to a great deal of unhappiness. Again, one of the myths that we are that we are sold. So that's one extreme, one school of thought. It's about the goal, the milestone, the peak of the mountain. On the other extreme, we have it's all about the present moment. It's all about the here and now. Look, those goals, they just don't make us happy. Look at all the examples. Look at your life. You need to go to the other extreme and just learn to really be present, be in the here and now. And that's more associated with the East than the West. And again, I'm just very broad generalization here. But there's also a problem with that. And the problem is human nature. And our nature is such that we also, not only, but also care about the future, about the outcome. So we have a thesis, we have antithesis. The question is, what's the synthesis? And the synthesis can be, not the only one, but can be. Looking at goals, appreciating goals as means rather than ends. In other words, it's not the goal that will make me happy. In other words, it's not the achievement of that milestone that is the answer to well-being. However, it is a means towards that end. In what way? If I have a goal, if I have an outcome that I strive for, that potentially can liberate me to enjoy the journey. In other words, to enjoy the present. I'll give you a personal example and then turn to your example. A personal example is, let's say I have a book that I want to write. And I've committed to my publisher that on July 1, 2024, that book will be ready for publication. And then I work back and I say, well, in order to get that book, I need to work on it, let's say, five days a week for three hours every day or three times a week or six, whatever. But I have a very clear goal now that I'm striving towards. Now that I have that goal, I can just let go. Because when I wake up in the morning, I know that I'm going to sit down in front of my computer and write, which is something that I love to do, which is meaningful, which is enjoyable to me, which is my passion, which is my strength. So all these things are important. However, it's the end goal that liberates me to wake up in the morning and say, I know what I want to do. I want to read and write or talk to people about it or whatever. This goal, in a sense, focuses me instead of me waking up in the morning and saying, should I, maybe I'll just stay in bed or watch a movie or, you know, binge on that series or or maybe I should exercise now rather than in the afternoon. No, I'm very clear about what I'm going to do every morning, which is my best time to write. And again, this is right for me. doesn't mean that it's right for everyone to have this kind of schedule. Regardless, that schedule is a product of what I'm striving for, what I'm aiming for. The goal is no longer important, the focus of my being or the bane of my existence. It's just there. And I'm going to get there through divide and conquer by doing something every day. And I know what I'm going to do today and tomorrow. Now, it's when I liberate myself with that end goal that I'm in a much better place to experience what you talked about as flow. Or you talked about my brain forgets, right? You use this phrase. What does it mean when your brain forgets? It means that you're in the present moment. 
But it's very clear when we started this conversation, we were going to be talking for 60 minutes or so. That was a clear goal. And having that clear goal, it's not the end. It's a means towards the end. What's the end? Flow, forgetting, being in the present and enjoying the conversation or the writing or the interaction or whatever it is that we are doing. Goals are means towards the end, which is the present moment. It's the destination that liberates us to enjoy the journey. Well, I have really been enjoying this journey so much that I feel like there's so much more to explore with you. And yet, because of our time commitment, I would love to choose one last thing to discuss with you, which is something you and I talked about. And I'm very curious to hear your thoughts on. It's a big subject, though. So I'm also curious to see how you can broach something so big in the time remaining. (laughs) You talked a lot about stories and mentioned things like movies, and it ties into this subject of artificial intelligence in an interesting way, because as of the time we're recording this in July 2023, a big movie just came out called Oppenheimer. And I saw this interview with Christopher Nolan, the director, one of my favorite directors of all time. I have not seen Oppenheimer yet, but I believe it was on an interview on the show, The View. And one of the women asked him about the parallels between the Oppenheimer history and AI and how Oppenheimer is the story around human beings discovering something very dangerous, lethal potential, something that can literally end the world and the responsibility that comes with that. And I would encourage the listener, I'll put this in the show notes for you if you want to watch Christopher Nolan's answer about where we're at right now in 2023 with artificial intelligence, which to some people feels very dangerous. Some people are afraid that it's going to impact humanity in a lot of negative ways. And Tal, I remember you saying you have a lot of thoughts, you reflect a lot on artificial intelligence, as do I. So I would love to hear your brief answer to this, your thoughts. And do you see parallels between Oppenheimer and the people that are creating the AI technology right now? Yeah. So I'll be very brief and in the next two and a half hours, we'll give you my two cents on it. Yeah. So first of all, I must say I did not make the overlap. I'm, uh, I'm very familiar with, you know, with the history of the atomic bomb and with the Manhattan Project. And I think about it uh, a lot as one of the defining moments for good and ill of humanity. And, you know, the story is still writing itself. But yes, now that you mention it, I absolutely do see parallels because AI is a force that has been unleashed. And perhaps it has the potential to save humanity. It certainly has the potential to create a lot of harm for humanity. Again, because we don't have that much time, I just want to focus on one aspect of it. Now, let's say we had ChatGPT or AI capabilities. It was 25 years ago when I started to write my first book. 
happier. And I would write into ChatGPT the following. Please write me a 200-page book on uh, happiness. In the book, I would like you to draw on the latest research in the science of well-being, psychology. I would also like you to incorporate Greek, Chinese, and African philosophers as you create this book. And please, if you don't mind, if you could write it in the voice of uh, Marianne Evans, a.k.a. George Eliot, who is my favorite author. And I would have pressed enter then, and I don't know, 30 seconds later, or maybe a couple of minutes later, there'd be a 200-page book written on the topic of happiness, incorporating the latest research in psychology, neuroscience, biology, you name it, as well as the thoughts of philosophers in the voice of Marianne Evans. Probably, possibly would have had to go over it and modify some stuff, maybe incorporate a bit of my stuff. But very quickly, in no time, I would have had a book and it would probably be a quite a good book on happiness. So that's wonderful. In fact, it took me 10 years to write my first book. 10 years to write my first book. Around 1996 to 2006. And my question is, even if the book would have been as good or better, if it was given to AI in 1996, where would I be in 2006? Because a lot of where of what I became is a result of the struggles and the failures and the mistakes and the triumphs and the victories and the disappointments and the blessings that I experienced during those 10 years. Life is not the outcome. Life is the process and the journey. And my concern, the AI, is that it will prevent many of us from going through important, invaluable journeys. It will get us to the destination too quickly, too easily. And we learn and we grow and we develop and we become as a result of the journey, the process, the hardships and the struggles. You know, if you go to the gym and you lift weights and all the weights are set on zero, you will not grow stronger, bigger, healthier. You need resistance. You need time. You need hardship. You need effort. And we as human beings will do ourselves a great disservice if we circumvent the hardships, difficulties, the journey. And that's my biggest concern in the realm of psychology. Will we continue to struggle or will the AI revolution, and it is a revolution, will it serve us things too easily, zero resistance, and prevent us from enjoying the fruits of hardships and challenges? I have to say you did a beautiful job summarizing your thoughts in such a short 
period of time, which is a bit ironic (laughs) to try to condense something so big in a small period of time. There's a lot of parallels between what you did and what you were saying. It is food for thought, but important. And I hadn't thought about it quite the way that you describe. I get very excited about new developments, but then I'll enter a phase of questioning them and watching other people embark upon them. And then that's where where I start to feel like, oh, now that the excitement's worn off, I'm noticing (laughs) some things that don't sit so well with me. And yeah, it's a very interesting time. Some people have compared AI to the development of the iPhone, you know, like what life was like before we had these devices in our pocket, that how much has changed since 2007 when the iPhone came out and how commonplace it is for people to be looking down and the danger of disconnection and the parallels between the loneliness epidemic and depression. I mean, we have these amazing tools on our hand, but at what cost is the question. Yeah. And you know, Whitney, I think the comparison to the iPhone or to tools in general is an apt one because tools can be used for good or ill. Um, It's like electricity. Is electricity good or bad? Well, it depends. What do you use it for? Do you use it to electrocute an innocent person? Very bad. Do you use it for life support? Very good. So it's the same with the smartphones and it's the same with AI. Do we use it or do we abuse it? Do we grow through it as a result of it? Or are we abused by it? And it's not an easy question. Again, the jury is still out. You know, certainly on AI, it's still out on smartphones. Interesting times. So I suppose my final question is, with all these new tools in our hands, how do we navigate our own happiness amongst things that, again, like the atomic bomb, it's sometimes just a a button away from destruction. How do each of us find and tune into our inner compass of happiness with all these different opinions and divisions and voices we've talked about? I mean, there's a lot there. If you had a simple answer to that question, Mm. (laughs) where do we begin to find our own happiness? Another two and a half hours. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. You know, Whitney, in all our courses, that are part of the Happiness Studies Academy, whether we're talking a 12-part series or a year-long certificate program or a master's degree in Happiness Studies, what I encourage my fellow juniors to do is, in addition to learning about the research, which is great, in addition to experimenting, trying out the tools and techniques, what I always recommend is, in addition to that research, engage in me search. In other words, look outside, ask for opinions, ask for ideas, and spend a lot of time looking inside. And the me search, the self-reflection, the personal examination is no less important, if not more important, than the external exploration. And I think if we find the right balance, and the right balance is not 50-50 necessarily, and it's different for you than it is for me. But if we find the right balance for us between the external and 
the genius of the end, and the internal. That is when we can uh, identify, best identify what is right for us. You know, uh, Mahatma Gandhi, his autobiography is titled My Experiments with Truth. Not my finding truth, not the ultimate truth. It's my experiments with truth. And I think this captures a very important truth in and of itself, that life is about experimentation. It's about trying. It's about trial and error. It's about allowing ourselves to journey along as we try, experiment, fail, get up, succeed, and then try again. Couldn't think of a better way to wrap up this wonderful journey with you today has brought me that present flow state. I have felt so in awe of your words of wisdom. These questions are coming up for me. It has felt like that balance you described of listening to you, but the journey that I've been on internally while listening has been really wonderful. And there's a lot to process and integrate after this conversation. I'm very grateful for that. And it's been such a joy to spend time with you after reading your books. And I still have many more to read. I learned today you have 10 total as of July 2023. <laughs> so, so much to dig in. And I'm also incredibly curious about taking your classes. I was looking at the master's degree and thinking, hmm, I could see myself doing this. Talk about a journey. How many hours? It's over a thousand hours, the master's degree. Is that right? Yeah, it's a two-year-long program. Wow. That's quite an immersion. Yeah, it is an immersion, which I must say, being a fellow journeyer rather than their teacher, I'm enjoying it tremendously. I bet. And it must be so wonderful to witness the journey of each of the students, how they start, where they evolve to. And I will put the information for anyone who's enjoyed this journey and is curious about continuing the journey with you. I'll link to Tal's website. I'll link to the classes, the programs, the masters. There's so much, plus all the books, of course, if you're curious where to go next. What book would you say is a good starting place? Is it Happier? That's your first book. It would you go in book. order? <laughs> uh, not necessarily. I would actually go... I never thought about this question. <laughs> Well, the opposite. I would start with the latest one. So the latest one has the same first name, but a different last name. It's called Happier No Matter What. And I actually wrote it during the pandemic when most of us were really struggling. And I thought, okay, so what does the field of happiness studies have to contribute to our well-being in difficult times? So that's when, when I wrote that. So I would start with that. And then I piques your interest, then work yourself back, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> that's actually my reading list to read next. Although I think I started with Happier than The Pursuit of Perfect. And then today I read almost in its entirety, Shortcuts to Happiness, and they're just all lovely. And I was telling Tal that I felt so comforted, especially from Shortcuts so even if you're looking for a moment of feeling uplifted and getting in more connection with yourself, these books can just be a wonderful journey that we've experienced with you today. So thank you so much for all the work that you do, your commitment to helping people find their happiness, feel happier, 
explore, learn. It's just been an absolute delight. And I'm curious about your more opinions on AI. So I hope you talk about that. I could spend a whole episode exploring that with you, that two and a half hours you mentioned. I hope you do it somewhere. (laughs) (laughs) And for the listener, I will link to all of this. We've talked about so much today and, and I know it can be a lot. So to make it really easy, you can use within your podcast player, the description section. You might have to click see more and right there will be the link for the next app with Tal. And if you want to go find all the resources from today, there's a second link there that leads to my website, wellevator.com. That's W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com. And there's a full blog post based on this episode that'll have all the resources. That'll have the video eventually when that's published on YouTube. That'll have nice imagery and quotes. And so if you want to go look back on anything that was shared today and reflect on it more, you will find that there. So again, right in your description are both those links to make it easy for you. Thank you so much, Tal, for this wonderful journey and dialogue. And thank you for the listener for coming along with us. Thank you, Whitney. This was a real flow experience for me, and I'm grateful. Thanks for listening and getting out of your comfort zone with us today. For show notes and more high-performance resources to help you thrive, go to wellevator.com. That's W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com.